1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: At the end of a long working day,
0: some people are happy to just get off their feet. On one hand, I absolutely love and adore my feet because they allow me to dance and live my passion. On the other hand, my toes are red. Usually my arches and the balls of my feet are extremely sore at the end of a day.
1: I work for the United States Postal Service as a letter carrier. I'm on my feet from eight to 12 hours a day. At the end of the day, my feet feel terrible. I usually get off work and put my Crocs on immediately.
3: I love my feet. I love how far they've carried me over the decades. A couple of years ago, though, I broke my toe, and I didn't bother to get it fixed, and now it droops all the time, and I stub it constantly, and that drives me crazy.
2: We look at faces when we greet one another, but maybe looking down would reveal more about who we are. Whether yours are bare, bunioned, or blistered, your feet tell the tale of how you spend your time. Your feet, after all, are the most tangible contact you make with the Earth. And if you do an average amount of walking, your feet will carry you about 100,000 miles during your lifetime. That's pretty impressive. But in addition to saying something about who we are as individuals, feet also tell a story about our capabilities as a species. So let's think on our feet. I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, The Evolution of the Foot, the benefits and downsides of bipedalism, and what 12,000-year-old footprints reveal about the behavior and possibly even the emotional state of the person who made them. And could it be that our feet are what make us human? This episode is Feet Don't Fail Me.
2: Taking a walk around the neighborhood? It's an easy way to get some exercise. Slip on some comfy shoes, and off you go. Or forget the shoes, like evolutionary biologist Daniel Lieberman does.
1: We evolved to run, and we evolved to run barefoot. I think the thing that's most important about barefoot running, well, there are two things. The first is that um, when you don't have all that supportive stuff in your shoe, your foot muscles have to work harder. And so um, my foot is definitely a lot stronger than it used to be.
4: I have to see if you have shoes on right now. Uh,
1: I'm wearing shoes, but I'm wearing minimal shoes.
4: Okay, now. so you no, are wearing no shoes cushioning. at the moment. And I'm not
1: opposed to shoes. And when I, a lot of the time when I run, I wear shoes. It's only in the summer when it's nice. I mean, shoes are useful. They protect the sole of your foot. But again, everything has trade-offs. There are costs and benefits. So the, the, the benefits of shoes are they protect the sole of your foot. Uh, the costs are that they the muscles of your feet have to work less hard, particularly if they're very you know shoes that have all kinds of stuff, fancy stuff in them, like cushioned heels and in arch supports and toe springs and all these technology that we put into our shoes. But for me, the other thing that's really important about shoes, about but going barefoot, is that the fourth most innervated part of your body supposedly is the sole of your foot. You get lots of sensory feedback from your foot. That doesn't, that happen for a reason, right? It's useful to get information from the ground that helps your central nervous system function properly. And we lose that when we wear cushioned shoes. So when you run barefoot, you stop slamming into the ground hard because it hurts. Right? When you wear a shoe, you may slam into the ground, but the shoe cushions you, and you don't feel it. So what barefoot runners have to do is they have to run lightly and gently. And I think that's the most important thing about barefoot running. It forces you to, to land softly. And, and when you land softly, you don't put those huge impacts on your body. Um, and uh, and it's, a, it's a way of learning to run. Um, so you have to slowly adapt your body to actually be able to run barefoot if you've not been doing it before. So you have to be really, really, really careful if you try it. You know, just run down the street for 100 feet and see what it feels like.
4: You mean down well, down the sidewalk? Do yeah. You, do, I, you I, run, do you run on the sidewalk or do you run on trails? Where do you I run? I run on
1: city streets and sidewalks. Yeah. Do you
4: know what's on city streets?
1: Yeah. But you know what? When I get home from my run, I wash my feet. I, I, I think one of the funniest moments I ever had was I was running uh, in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, and uh, a woman who was walking her dog said to me, how can you run barefoot? And I just couldn't help it. I just said, how can you let your dog walk barefoot? And the look of shock on her face. It's okay for our dogs, but not for us. Uh, When I get home from a barefoot run, the first thing I do is I go wash my feet.
4: Probably because there are so many dogs also on our sidewalks. There's uh, a lot of things we let dogs do that maybe we shouldn't let them do.
1: (laughs) Oh, come on. I think dog poo is not one of the big serious concerns, health concerns out there. Look, but the important reason I run barefoot is I enjoy it. It's fun. I would get pleasure from it. Remember, it's, there's nothing abnormal or strange or bizarre about it. We just live in a world today where we think it's normal to wear shoes. But that's a blip, right, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, actually, it's abnormal to wear shoes. It's abnormal not to have calluses on your feet. It's abnormal to be sitting in chairs. It's abnormal to have breakfast that comes from a box. It's abnormal to fly in these metal tubes through the air. There's not nothing wrong with these novel things, but they all have costs and they all have benefits.
4: Daniel Lieberman, thank you so much for speaking to us.
1: It's been my pleasure.
2: Feet, you make me nervous when you're in your seat.
3: Take off your shoes and pat your feet. We don't a dance that can't be beat. We barefootin'. We
4: barefootin'. Dr. Lieberman is not the only one who has feet on the brain.
5: Each foot has somewhere between 26 to 28 bones, depending on who you are. Uh, So the two feet together account for almost 25% of the bones in your body. So that's a very complicated setup. Hi, I'm Madhusudan Venkadesan, an associate professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Yale University. I study and I want to know how animals move and how their parts fit together.
4: This is our bridge to a discussion about the evolution of the foot.
2: When you soak your dogs after a long day, you may forget to thank them for the support they provided when you were on the go. Sure, when they ache or they turn knobby with bunions or cause you to stub your toe yet again, your feet don't feel like wonders of evolution, but they are, especially the development of the
4: arch. Like the city of Florence, the foot has many arches. Two longitudinal arches, the medial and lateral, along the length of the foot, that is toe to heel, and one running across your foot, the transverse
5: arch. So when you look at the middle of your foot, it's the equivalent of the knuckle of your hand, you see the bones are arranged in an arch running across the width of the foot.
4: Arches give mechanical strength to feet in much the same way they do for stone buildings or bridges, although here, evolution was the architect, not a Renaissance engineer. In a new paper, Dr. van Kadesen and his team
2: describe how the transverse arch in the human foot, not previously studied, plays a bigger role than thought in allowing for our unique mobility. Evolved 3.5 million years ago, it contributes more to the foot stiffness than the other arches, which evolved more recently.
4: To get a sense of how the arch provides stiffness, well, Seth, can I, can I borrow a dollar?
2: <laughs> well, sure, Molly. Uh, if I give you five, will you give me four back?
4: Okay, so we'll take this dollar bill, or you can take a five-dollar bill, it doesn't matter. Hold it at one end, and you see how it flops around, right? Well, if you curl it along its length here, like this, it's stiffer. And you know, you find the same with a piece of pizza. If you fold it, it's less floppy, (laughs) and it's easier to eat.
2: By the way, when can I see that dollar again?
4: (laughs) Maybe when I can trade it for a piece of pizza. But,
2: But while our primate ancestors still have flexible feet for grasping, getting around in the trees, our stiff feet lets us push from them without falling over.
5: If you think about the walking style you use or the running style you use, you push with the front of your foot. You push with the ball of your foot. When you're pushing with the ball of your foot, you need the foot to be stiff. Otherwise, it's just going to give way. Think about running with the flippers and trying to push with the tip of your flippers. Not a great idea unless your flippers were stiff enough.
2: Okay, I understand. We push with the forward part of our feet and you know, this stiffness allows the energy of that motion to be transferred to the feet and to push us along wherever we're walking to. But on the other hand, I mean, I see a lot of other animals walking around and some of them go pretty fast. Uh, do they have this same march?
5: Very good. So uh, if you look at quadrupeds, uh, like take, take a dog that can outrun you over a short distance quite easily, uh, the, what you think of as the foot is really the tip of the foot that it's resting on. So when you look at a dog, you think the, the knees are pointing backward. It's not really the knee that's pointing backward. It's it's the heel. It's, a, it's such a long foot, and the heel is sticking out backward. So the, your dog or, or uh, deer or cattle, it's most of the time standing on tippy toes, not like us. But now if you start tracking evolution of animals and ask what, what did our ancestor do? We have a lot of reason to think at least 7 million years ago, Our ancestors was living in trees and using prehensile feet, so using their feet like hands. The flexible feet 7 million years ago then changed into stiff feet by certainly 2 million years ago.
2: Okay, that wasn't done to uh, aid the people who manufacture shoes or things we might put in them. I mean, evolution decided that stiffer feet were a good deal. Uh, What was the evolutionary pressure? Why did we become stiff-footed?
5: You are absolutely right that it has nothing to do with shoes. And I would make a small change to how you described evolution. If something's good for you, you don't evolve it. Rather, if you have it by chance and it turns out to be good for you, you end up fixing it in your your lineage. So how did the first stiff foot evolve? That was probably just chance. But once you had that, that let you do things. It let you travel distance on ground and be energy efficient.
2: All right, so what you're saying is, this gave our ancestors the ability to maybe walk farther distances. That might be an advantage if you don't have much in the way of food where you are. Uh, it's said that, you know, humans are distinguished from other animals, not by being the fastest or being able to, you know, climb trees or It's because they can just walk and walk and walk and walk. It, this sounds like a critical, if you will, development for that ability.
5: Absolutely right. So we can walk very long, but uh, keep in mind that humans can also run very long. We can sustain a marathon. There are almost no other, there's very few animals on the planet that can sustain a run at that speed for that distance. We think the foot is a very big part of what makes us so efficient over long distances.
2: So is it indeed mostly for hunting, I'm just sort of curious, or is this ability to just keep going an advantage in finding food that might not be meat, just food?
5: Um, The current understanding is that it's hunting because the kind of calorie density you can get in a hunt is way more than you can get out of foraging. And one of the biggest expensive parts of our body is our brain. Our brain's consuming 20 to 30% of our energy all the time. So to keep that alive, you need high-calorie diets, uh, which is very different from today when calories are on shelves in supermarkets. When you have to run around to find it, being able to find that big animal is a make or break moment.
2: You know, we don't do much with our toes, uh, I mean, except stepping on the accelerator or something like that. I mean, my toes are kind of useless. Is that just a price we paid, as it were, for stiff stiff feet?
5: Well, which toe would you rather lose today? <laughs> Your toes are a very big part of what you do for in multiple ways. We know that people who don't have toes have trouble balancing. If you measure the pressure under the foot as someone's walking, even not forget, let alone running, when they're pushing off, you see a lot of pressure under the toes just before pushing off. And our foot has this very clever little mechanism built into it. When you flex your toes, there is a thick elastic band that goes from your toes all the way to your heel. And that actually uh, helps the middle of your foot take on these extra loads it's able to take. So you have very clever built-in mechanisms that distribute the load, and the toes are a part of it.
2: I guess ballet dancers know about uh, <laughs> the use of our toes. I mean, they, they can put their entire weight on these little things.
5: Right. Uh, that's a little different in the sense they're loading the toe in a different orientation. Uh, they're not trying to flex the toe. They, they bind the foot tightly to try and stiffen it. But you're right that the toe can take pretty high loads, and we think, in fact, the toes in humans became shorter in order to withstand these high loads and not break. So if you notice, we have much shorter toes than our primate cousins.
2: Maru, I know you also study hands. Uh, how does that connect with your study of the feet? Is it pretty much the same thing in a different environment, or are they really fundamentally different?
5: My interest comes from how things move in general and how body parts work. So hands and feet are two major pieces of what makes us human. And so I am naturally interested. But there are nice connections between hands and feet. They both share essentially one-to-one. You can map the bones of the feet to the hand. They are, they are both part of an evolutionary lineage of appendages that were used to move. And in fact, I also study fish fins of fishes that swim, fishes that move on land using their fins because they all have quite shared evolutionary lineage, and understanding how they work will probably tell us a little more about why animals are the way they are.
2: Well, finally, Matu, after you point out so many of the abilities that our feet provide, I kind of wonder why we bothered with shoes.
5: I grew up with, with very little use of shoes, and my feet are fine right now. So it's not that shoes helped me run and be athletic as a kid but I I cannot tell you even one day when I wished I had nicer shoes, So there is a cultural element to it, which is very, very strong. Is that causing any damage? We cannot make such a direct link. So if you are used to running around with shoes and there are large numbers of people who run in shoes regularly and lead quite healthy lives to the end of their lives, not a big deal. On the other hand, there are large numbers who also injure themselves if you ask one of them to remove their shoe and start running barefoot, uh, besides glass and needles and whatnot on the sidewalk in a city, uh, they are going to start damaging various parts of their foot that's just not used to being loaded the way it is when you suddenly throw away your shoe. So running is a learned skill, and a foot is a living organ that adapts as you start using it.
2: Maru Venkatesan Venkadesan, thanks very
5: much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Seth. Uh, great questions.
4: Madhu Venkadesen is an associate professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Yale University. So, Seth, what is it about an arch that provides strength?
2: Well, the, the point is that if you press down on an arch, you know, the force is distributed to each of the legs of the arch, right? You can picture that kind of. And so, you know, well, look at a piece of uh, corrugated cardboard, right? If you look at it from the side there, you see that it consists of a whole bunch of arches, Right. And that's what gives it the strength. So if you try and crush it or the Postal Service tries to crush it, it's kind of hard to do.
4: So having those arches in the corrugated cardboard, I guess that's the corrugated part, (laughs) uh, allows it to be a little bit stiffer than regular cardboard.
2: But of course, you have the same thing going on in your feet. And that that really helped us out on the savannas when food might be, well, you'd have to go for takeout and takeout might be far away.
4: Well, I'm glad that we didn't end up with corrugated feet.
2: (laughs) Well, that would help you on slippery sidewalks. Coming up, (laughs) standing up and taking those first steps how bipedalism let humans see
3: more of the world and got us talking about it. Our bipedal locomotion is connected to something that happens much later in our evolutionary history, and that would be language. But I think bipedalism laid the foundation for this and was the prerequisite for there to be the evolution of a linguistic ape.
4: This episode is taking you places. It's Feet Don't Fail Me on Big Picture Science.
2: We're finding out how human evolution got us off on the right foot. The arch that runs across human feet plays a big role in the development of our exceptional mobility. But since we may take it for granted, remind us, paleoanthropologist Jeremy De Silva, how is bipedalism special?
3: So humans are the only mammal on earth. That moves on two rather than four legs and there are other animals like chimpanzees and bears that can get up on two legs but we're the only ones that do it all the time and even though it makes us incredibly slow and unstable on our two legs we actually have quite a bit of endurance that we can get from point a to point b in a relatively economical manner the, Muhammad, the olympic champion wins the, Nationals. the world record is
4: Some people make fleet-footedness look easy, but you don't have to take home the gold to have done something remarkable. Have you been for a walk lately?
3: Yeah, walking has been referred to as a controlled fall. And so when you want to move from point A to point B, you will stick a leg forward. And then as you lift that leg, gravity will pull you downwards. And you don't want to fall on your face, so you kick that leg out and catch yourself but now your center of mass is a little bit lower than it was and you need to regain that potential energy. So your muscles in your support leg contract, lift your body upwards, and then you repeat the process and you do it all over again. So give yourself a hand for what you can do on all twos.
4: Most animals, after all, rely on twice that to get from here to there.
3: I talked to my students a lot about if they were gonna design me a chair from scratch, and they make it out of four legs, that'd be great. If they make me a bar stool out of three legs, that'd be fine. But who in their right mind would make a chair out of two legs? It would just fall over. Dr. De Silva
2: and his team have identified in the fossil record the many evolutionary anatomical changes from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes that allow us to do a remarkable balancing act. It's an ability that distinguishes us from other species. His book is First Steps, how upright walking made us human.
3: You know, humans walk around their world all the time and we don't make much of it. But every once in a while, there's another animal like a gorilla or a bear. For instance, a uh, a gorilla at the Philadelphia Zoo by the name of Lewis started moving on two legs uh, because he would gather up tomatoes in his enclosure. And he learned the hard way that if he knuckle walked with tomatoes in his hands, they would squish. And he would get all upset that he had these squished tomatoes. So he started moving on two legs. Not too often, you know, maybe once every two weeks. And somebody videotaped this, posted it to YouTube. It has millions of hits. And he ended up on the CBS morning news. So when we walk bipedally, we have a word for it. It's pedestrian, right? It's ordinary. But when another animal does it, uh, it's newsworthy. Well, that description shows how uh, complex this is. Sure, but chickens can do it, right? So it doesn't take much brain power to be a bipedal, to be a bipedal animal. And uh, you know we, we do see it in these uh, non-mammals uh, in, av- in the avian world. Uh, and we see it in these birds because birds are descendants of dinosaurs and they were bipedal dinosaurs. So they have had a 250 million year head start on us uh, in terms of their bipedal abilities and anatomies
2: bipedalism appeared early in in our history, uh, evolutionary history. You're right, Jerry, that uh, looking for a single reason for bipedalism is probably a fool's errand. Uh, But bipedalism does offer a whole bunch of benefits. Maybe it's more energy efficient. Freeze your arms for carrying stuff around and you can see over the grass and all these sorts of things. Uh, What are the upsides and downsides of bipedalism?
3: Well like you said there there are a lot of upsides um bringing the hand for stone tool construction we know that stone tools go back now 3.3 3 million years and culminate now in, uh, you know, we're flying helicopters on Mars. So, you know, being able to innovate and and make things uh, with those free hands, being able to carry uh, infants, carry food, carry water, those are all uh, important uh, survival advantages. There uh, are thermoregulatory advantages of moving on two legs as well. Uh, not as much of your body is exposed to an equatorial sun and being higher up means more evaporative cooling from the breezes blowing past you. And so there are are these these advantages? Um, but there are so many disadvantages as well. The fastest human on earth, the fastest human perhaps ever, Usain Bolt. The fastest he ever ran was in his 100 meter gold medal record-setting performance in the 2008 Olympics. He topped out at 28 miles an hour in the 100 meter. 28 miles an hour. That sounds impressive, right? It's half the speed of a galloping zebra antelope. And more importantly, half the speed of a leopard or a lion. And so evolving bipedal locomotion means we can't gallop anymore. That we wouldn't be able to get away simply by sprinting to get away from from predators. But Jeremy, could we ever gallop? I mean, maybe 10 million years ago? That's a great question. you know with the fossils that we currently have we're still trying to reconstruct what the locomotion was of these ancient apes it looks like they were quite comfortable in the trees and were moving with what we call quadrumanus locomotion so four hands hands and feet moving through the trees grabbing onto branches Uh, and i don't think they were particularly fast when when they were on the ground. But if you double that time and go back to, say, 20 million years ago or even even say 30 million years ago to the common ancestor that apes and monkeys would have shared with each other, uh, then, yeah, very much you would have had these ancestors of ours and and ancestors of modern monkeys and and all of the apes uh, that were moving on all fours. And just like a a baboon could do today or a pattus monkey, uh, it could take off across the ground and get into a galaxy. Were these knuckle runners? Well, they weren't using their knuckles, um, but yes, absolutely runners. Um, Knuckle walking itself is a mysterious locomotion, and we're still not sure about the evolutionary origins of knuckle walking. And so it could very well be what some of the research is now suggesting is that knuckle walking independently evolved in chimpanzee ancestors and in gorilla ancestors, from something that was actually more upright in the trees, like like an orangutan is. Jerry, you make the case in your book that uh, bipedalism has
2: done more for us than you know just uh, allowing us to get a, get around and see over the grass and that sort of thing. You say it facilitated the evolution of other traits, uh, for example, the development of language and tool use. Now, given that those are really important for humans. I mean, how did they do that? How how does being bipedal help me to
3: develop language? Oh, it's a great question. So with language, one of the most important things uh, is to be able to control your breathing and to produce these tiny particulate sounds with these high resolution muscle contractions in your chest. And that becomes possible because we are not relying on those muscles of the shoulder girdle, of the chest, of the arms to weight bear anymore and to travel and to get from point a to point b on all fours and one of the best ways to think about this is to try to have a conversation with somebody while carrying something extremely heavy it's really difficult to hold something in your arms really really heavy and then speak freeing up those muscles allow us then to make these tiny little sounds okay so our bipedal locomotion is then connected to something that happens much later in our evolutionary history and that would be uh, language now there are lots of other pieces to this recipe including changes to the brain and changes to a bone in the throat known as the hyoid Uh, but i think bipedalism laid the foundation for this and was the prerequisite for there to be the evolution of a linguistic ape. So once we became bipedal, there were some costs, some immediate costs, but what are
2: some of the costs we still pay today? I suppose lower back pain is one.
3: That's right. Yeah. You can think of the human skeleton or musculoskeletal system as a a modified ape skeleton. I mean, we evolved from an ape like creature, uh, not any modern ape, but an ape living you know, six, seven million years ago. So we, through the process, the tinkering process of evolution, are modified apes. And think about, uh, for instance, you mentioned the, the lower back as a result of the curvature of our spine that's necessary for pulling the torso pulling the upper body over the hips and balancing again we talked about balancing being really important balancing the upper limb uh, over the hips Um, one of the other things that happens when you become a biped uh, is that your knees angle inwards we are a knock-kneed species but you're not born with this this is something that you acquire as you walk on two legs and the pressures on the growth plate cause them to grow unevenly and it puts the knees next to each other and that allows us to move in a straight line and not sway back and forth very much but it also leaves our knees quite vulnerable to injury. Any shear forces that are that are contacting the knee when it's angled like that is gonna introduce all sorts of torques on those ligaments of the knee. And so we have uh, all sorts of folks that blow out their ACL, PCL, uh, MCL, LCL, right? All these ligaments that can be damaged. Um, but the absolute nightmare of the human body is the foot. We have so many foot problems as a result of converting over a short evolutionary period of time, converting what was a grasping mobile appendage that operated more like a hand in our ancestors, grabbing onto tree branches and climbing into a rigid organ. This is what I, I call as a evolution's version of using paper clips and duct tape to piece together from a mobile structure, this rigid lever. And does it work well enough? Yeah. Can we get from point A to point B? We sure can. Are we, are we extinct? No, <laughs> we're still here. So it worked well enough, but Evolution doesn't necessarily result in comfort, and so we have all sorts of problems as well. Collapsed arches, bunions, ankle sprains, hammer toes, you name it, and it's in part because of this foot that we have. Well, finally,
2: we all have the same anatomy, so why are gates so different? What
3: What's varying? That's a great question. Um, so our anatomy does vary a little bit. Everyone is slightly different Uh, shapes to the bones of their feet, slightly different lengths to their legs, slightly different shapes of the pelvis, and slightly different musculature attaching in slightly different ways to all of these anchors. And that's going to lead already to subtle gait differences. But gait is not just a function of your musculoskeletal anatomy. Um, you are influenced by what's around you. So I remember as a kid trying to walk like my older brother um, because he was really cool. So I wanted to be like him. So I would try to walk like him. Uh, and then you have people who, you know, in particular uh, cultures will will walk in a particular way because that is communicating something about their status. And so. Gate is not just getting from point A to point B. It's a way that we recognize each other, and it's a way that we actually can communicate with each other. Jerry DeSilva, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. I really appreciate it.
4: These boots
6: are
0: made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you.
7: Are you ready, Boots?
0: Start walking.
4: Jeremy De Silva is a paleoanthropologist and a professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College. His book is First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human. Well, it, it strikes me, Seth, that there are a lot of things that have made us human, but certainly bipedalism is one of them.
2: Yeah, that's, and that's really interesting because you... Your first thought is what made us human was the brain, right? Who would have thought it was your feet? But standing on two feet in any case, remarkable.
4: What I'm thinking about now is how quickly our grasping hands had to become sturdy feet. But prior to that, uh, whenever our ancestors walked on all fours, they would have had sturdy feet. So presumably we went from sturdy feet to grasping feet hands back to sturdy feet.
2: Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) that's evolution for you. It adapts you to to fit into the environment or to survive in the environment. Well, of course, it's only a reactive kind of thing. If it, it comes up with something new that happens to allow you to reproduce a little bit more efficiently than the guy next to you, well, your genes pass on that characteristic. But you say that it was pretty quickly you know, millions of years. So I don't know. It doesn't sound all that quick to me, but maybe.
4: Well, and then also the idea that when you're holding something heavy, as you would be carrying your weight on all fours, it's very hard to talk or make a sound. But if you're upright and you can shed that weight, you open up your diaphragm and you can start making sounds. Of course, there had to be other developments in the throat and the tongue and the brain. But standing up was one of the developments that led to language.
2: Well, that's one of the reasons why dogs are not all that garrulous. Coming up. Our footprints are as revealing as fingerprints and what they say about those who made them, even when the footprints are 12,000 years old.
7: There are a few things that are unique about this track. So it's the longest human trackway we've ever found. We've never had a, an outward and a return journey. Next, taking a step into the past.
4: This episode is Feet Don't Fail Me on Big Picture Science.
2: We rely on various devices to help us get from here to there, whether it's an elevator, an escalator, a car, rickshaw,
1: or a bicycle. But it wasn't always so, and it still isn't in some parts of the world. So the evidence is that uh, if you look at hunter-gatherers, for example, from around the world, the worldwide average for hunter-gatherers, and we were, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers until a few hundred generations ago. But the average hunter-gatherer walks A female hunter-gatherer walks about 9 kilometers a day, so about 5 miles a day. The average male walks 15 kilometers a day, so about 10 miles a day, every day. This is average. And so that means, put it into real terms, it means the average female hunter-gatherer basically walked from L.A. to Washington, D.C. every year. That was normal, and also while carrying things.
2: Now, imagine you are one of those hunter-gatherers 12,000 years ago. You walk long distances every day. Maybe you do it with a child on your back, maybe a load of firewood. There are no paved roads. So you're traversing muddy terrain or sand, even rocks, all while keeping a sharp eye out for animals. And in North America during the Paleolithic, some of those furry beasts were mammoths or saber-toothed cats.
4: Scientists have made a remarkable find the longest trail of fossilized human footprints. It was made by an individual who walked about a mile across the plains and back in what is now New Mexico's White Sands National Park. The chief of resources at the park, David Bustos, spotted the Ice Age Trail. He says he doubted his eyes at first because the footprints seemed to come and go with the weather, earning them the name, the Ghost Tracks.
2: With the help of paleontologist Sally Reynolds at Bournemouth University, together with other scientists, they were able to reconstruct a single walk made 12,000 years ago.
4: So first, I just want to start by saying thank you both for joining us. I mean, talk about far-flung destinations. Sally, you're in the UK. And David, are you actually in White Sands National Park right now outside?
6: Yeah, I'm actually sitting on the edge of a dune that The uh, Wi-Fi was acting up a little bit earlier today, so (laughs) I had to to go outside. So I'm actually sitting on on the edge of an interdunal area right now, looking into a, a small grass grassland in front of me.
4: Oh, it sounds lovely. Well, let's start with some basics with what your team found. And, well, Sally, I wonder if you could tell us if this is a rare find that David came across. It
7: is. It's certainly a rare find. We think that footprint sites are special because they have to be preserved in very specific ways. And the footprints have to be covered over quite soon after they've been made in order to preserve them.
6: So we didn't really think much about it. You know, who would think, you You know, you don't expect to see human prints alongside a mammoth print. That's That's hard to, <laughs> it's incredible, you know, to even think that.
7: There are a few things that are unique about this track. So it's the longest human trackway we've ever found. We've never had an outward and a return journey. We've never had a carrying trail that is an adult carrying a child, to my knowledge. Well,
4: let's get to the story that the prints do tell. How were you able to determine whether the individual who made them was a male or female, that they were carrying a child and not... I don't know, the Ice Age equivalent of a bag of groceries.
7: So we know it wasn't a bag of groceries because it has these little footprints that appear every now and again. Based on the size of the adult footprint, we've been able to assess that it is either an adolescent male or a young adult female. So we don't actually know the gender of the person who was doing the carrying. And we have little hints that maybe there's a little bit of asymmetry in the track especially on the outward bound journey, which suggests it was a side carry, not a carry on the back. In order to test some of these ideas, we've actually taken our master students down to the beach and I volunteered my then six or seven year old son to be the child in the experiment. And we made the students carry the child up and down in lots of different ways and then recorded the photogrammetry, trying to, to see if you carry a baby on the side or the other side or the back or the front, How would it show up in the footprint?
4: So we could imagine that the adult or the adolescent was setting the child down every now and then, as we need to do, you know, to take a breath and then maybe pick it up and put it on the other side. David, tell us more about this journey. You said that there are animal tracks that cross it, cross the human footprints. Um, How do you know that those animals were crossing those prints on the same day?
6: Yeah, so it looks like the footprints went one direction. They turned around and walked right alongside um, their same footprints on the way back. And so the size and the gait and the, the measurement of the, the foot appears to be the same individual that went out and came back again.
7: The conditions of the prints are very interesting. On the outward journey, the person who's making the journey, the adult, the adolescent, is, is walking very fast through very slippery mud. Okay, so it must have been during a rainstorm and and the sediment was very wet. On the return journey, there's slightly less slippage, suggesting that in the interval of just a few hours, the ground has started to dry out. It's that moisture difference between the outward slippery journey and the slightly less slippery return journey tells us that it's one single event separated by six or 12 hours. Wow
6: you see a person walk out in one direction. So in one direction, an animal um, steps on top of the footprints that a person left behind. And then on the way back, the person steps on top of the animal's footprints.
4: It's amazing that you can reconstruct this single day. What were the animals that crossed those tracks that day, David? You mentioned earlier that there were mammoth prints that you found.
6: Yeah, so the, the trackways that we see out along the, the double human trackway are giant ground sloth and and mammoth, and then we also see trackways of of a dire wolf sort of following alongside behind the the trackways as well.
4: And this is a naive question, but would those travelers have feared those animals, (laughs) a mammoth, a saber-toothed cat, dire wolf,
7: uh, or were those the squirrels of the day? No, it's a good question. And so I've I've thought about this in my mind and I thought, well, if I was a young woman undertaking this journey and I didn't feel safe, I would take several other people with me and I would find safety in numbers. And this is not what this individual chose to do. So either there wasn't time to get people together or the individual felt for whatever reason that there was a risk. They didn't hang around, that's for sure. They walked really fast. But perhaps they felt like the risk was manageable That in itself shows us that the humans felt very confident on their landscape.
4: So you're saying that from these footprints, you can tell something about the human skeleton and something about behavior, you've described that, but also about intention and almost almost what you're suggesting is emotional state at that moment.
7: Yeah, almost. So what we know, this is the individual was in a hurry. They knew exactly where they were going. They weren't wandering around getting lost. They, they walked in a straight line to their destination or they walked in a straight line back. On the outward journey, they appear to be carrying a child, which they put down. On the return journey, the child appears not to be present. And that suggests to us that the purpose of the journey was around the child. If I wanted to make a journey quickly through a dangerous terrain, I wouldn't take my two-year-old toddler who would just slow me down. Taking the toddler means that the toddler was somehow part of the reason for the journey. This is what makes this trackway so interesting, is that this is clearly someone on a mission, and although we don't know exactly what that mission was, we suspect that the child was somehow part of it. This is fascinating.
4: So, David, could you tell us a little bit about where this couple might have been heading? Do we know whether there were villages in the area? What was on one end of the tracks, and and what was awaiting them on the other end?
6: No, we, we really don't. About maybe another two kilometers or so, three kilometers, we have seen many more human prints up on the sort of the upper lake margin. So it's possible they would have been going over to one of those other areas.
7: There are a few things we think we can pose, at least. So people living in marginal environments, say, for example, the sand Bushmen in South Africa, live in very small groups that are spread over wide areas because you can't live in large concentrations if your food is very sparse. So we think that using that as a model, that there must have been lots of small little groups living across this landscape. The interesting thing is that this person knew where they were going, which means they knew that the other group was there. Mm-hmm. They weren't exploring. Exactly. They knew that they were there and they knew that they would have not a not hostile reception because she didn't travel with a group of people. If I was expecting a hostile reception, I would take people with me for backup. Mm-hmm. So whoever this, this person, this adolescent, in my mind, it's always a mother and child, but that's just one interpretation. Is traveling for help to another group, probably help for the child, and knows that they will be well-received and that the skills they want possibly help for the child. We'll be there on the other side which means to have a sense of um a connectedness of these these different groups on the landscape there's a network of humans living on this landscape they're not all clumped together in one single group mm-hmm. so there's quite a few things about this trackway that make it unique and, and stand out and although it gives us more questions than answers It certainly has given us this intriguing window into the past and we hope that with more information, more data, more excavation, we might be able to build up a bigger picture of what life was like. But what we're getting at the moment is a series of snapshots into the past and this journey with this child across this slightly wet, slippy landscape with these other animals. It is a very dramatic picture that, that really inspires us to try to find out more about the individual, which we may never know, but also about the people who were inhabiting that space.
4: Well, finally, for both of you, David and Sally, when you see these prints, and I know you've referred to them, David, as the ghost tracks, did you also feel the the presence of the people who were there 12,000 years ago? Did you feel closer to them? It seems like it would be quite profound to find something that would suggest that someone had just been there moments ago, but this was 12,000 years ago.
6: I think it is. And, you know, for for me, the, the prints have been amazing to see the whole time. But when I did feel, you know, that sense of just, you know, awe, is really um, when we were brushing out in the double track way where we seen a person was walking along, putting a child down and, and picking them back up again. And then we we made a, a 3D model, exact replica of the model. And we were looking at the model. And, you know, I was holding the, the model in my hand of, of this child. And I was looking at it. And I, I have um, three boys at home. And, and one of the the prints I was looking at looked like maybe of a two-year-old or so. It's, holy smokes, you know, and then it, it just hits you that this is real. And, and that's the incredible thing about these prints. You know, the archaeology, there's so many incredible artifacts. But sometimes you don't see... Things left behind of the children or you don't see the interactions of the family so the prince sort of the whole story it comes it comes to life in, in the prince
7: yes i agree with what david is saying you you're reminded of the fact that these people were parents just like we are today and, and it makes you realize that there's a lot that we have in common with these people who lived in the past
4: mm-hmm.
7: we we can actually relate to elements of their lives carrying the small child over this vast landscape, trying to avoid animals and get somewhere in a hurry. is something that we can all relate to in at least some part. And although the past often emphasizes how different our lives were, you know, thousands of years ago, in some cases, you get these windows that make you realize that life hasn't actually changed that much and we can actually connect with the past in quite a deep and meaningful way. And the, the process of parenthood being a parent, taking care of a small child, carrying a small child is something that people have really reacted to. And I think it's because it's so relatable to everybody's everyday life and that's why they like it.
4: Well, Sally Reynolds, thank you for joining us from your home in the UK. And David Bustos, thank you for joining us from the actual sands of White Sands National Park. It was a delight to speak to you both about this story. Thank you,
7: Molly. Thank Thank you you for your kind invitation. We hope we can speak to you about our future discoveries.
6: Thank you, Molly, again. and Thank you, Sally, as always, for for all all your help with with all the work out here. Thank you for this great opportunity.
7: You're too kind, David. Make sure you get out there and find us some more cool prints to work on. (laughs) (laughs)
6: We'll keep looking.
2: (laughs) Sally Reynolds is a paleontologist at Bournemouth University in the UK. And David Bustos is the Chief of Resources at White Sands National Park in New Mexico.
4: All right, well, it's that time in the show again. What is the big picture here, Seth, when we look at the evolution of feet and bipedalism?
2: Well, first, just something about that interview with David Bustos and Sally Reynolds, they look at footprints from 12,000 years ago, the last ice age, and it was just incredible how much they could learn and interpret from that. I mean, it was like Sherlock Holmes. But, you know, paleontologists are really remarkable. They find a tiny little bone, right? And they immediately can tell you, well, that's from a triceratops, but it was a young one and all that kind of stuff. It's just amazing.
4: One of the things we've talked about in the show is how our feet and bipedalism made us human. But there's something about the story of what it means to be human that is told in the footprints that we leave behind. We just heard about one story 12,000 years ago. But it made me wonder about the sorts of footprints we're leaving behind today, either literally <laughs> footprints or metaphorically the, the footprints of civilization.
2: Yeah, I think that they're all, all treaded footprints today. They're, they're tire tracks. So maybe maybe the uh, future paleontologists, you know, from 100,000 years from now will figure that Homo sapiens was a, a critter with wheels. <laughs> I don't know. It seems so strange. But there's no doubt about it. Our ability to range far and wide on our feet. I mean, humans rather quickly visited every place and settled, by the way, in virtually every place they could reach by walking, and that was most of the world.
4: Well, we could not do the show without the thinking-on-their-feet talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Lena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bowes Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates how biological evolution produces complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
4: Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of the program. And if you haven't already, well, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Feet Don't Fail Me.